You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our ongoing series from the book of Revelation, this time chapter 14, let us turn to the Old Testament for some background reading. We turn first of all to Isaiah chapter 63, the verses 1 to 6. Who is this coming from Edom? From Brozra with his garments stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Then we turn to Joel 3, beginning at verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Achaeus. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. This morning we've come to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, the verses 6 to the end of that chapter. You can see the headings, the three angels and the harvest of the earth. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. 
because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. The third angel followed and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we all need reminders from time to time. The parents among us need to be reminded that parenting is a privilege, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're dealing with a screaming child who has an earache. And the married among us sometimes need to be reminded that marriage is about love and not just about routine. And the students among us need to be reminded that going to school is about getting an education and not just about socializing. Oh, and the captains of cruise ships apparently need to be reminded not to sail too close to the shore. Reminders or reality checks, we all need them. Yes, and we need them as well as we continue to look further into the book of Revelation. For the fact of the matter is that there are countless people today who think that this book is like a big crystal ball or like a huge complex puzzle. 
Supposedly, it is God's gift to us so that we can figure out the future. But yet all the while, they tend to forget that this book is really a letter. A letter written to real people living in a real place at a real time. And indeed, it was originally written to a beat-up, battered people, to believers who were going through hard times filled with blood, sacrifice, discrimination, hatred, suspicion, imprisonment, and death. These people did not read Fox's Book of Martyrs. They lived it. They lived it every day. They knew what it was like to see their family and their friends being put to death before their very eyes. For many Christians, that first century was an endless nightmare of pain and suffering. Well, now, to such people, God sends a letter. Only it's no ordinary letter. It's a letter rich in symbols, especially Old Testament ones. It's a letter full of drama, conflict, and as we saw last time, scary monsters. It's also a letter that gives insight and opens up, as it were, new perspectives. Rightly does John call it the Revelation. Or, as the name suggests in the original, the unveiling. It's the taking off the wraps, so to seek, speak of the secret and hidden things of God. But more than even that, this is a letter of comfort. It's meant to encourage a discouraged people. It's supposed to cause struggling saints to soar. It's written to inject massive hope into downtrodden lives. And so, just how does it do that? Well, you might say, in part, by giving more than simply one perspective. What they see all around them is, as we said already, suffering and persecution. They have no life, and, and it appears on the surface no future. But then along comes this strange letter. And it repeatedly lifts them up, way, way up into the heavens. And there they catch this fuller, richer, more glorious glimpse of what is really happening. And indeed, beloved, we've seen that repeatedly, haven't we? The letters to the seven churches come to an end, and the last and the seventh letter in in chapter 3, is to that messed up church in Laodicea. But then immediately thereafter, chapter 4 opens, and the believers are told about a door standing open in heaven, and they see the throne and the Lamb. And chapter 6 tells them about the opening of the six seals and all the upheavals that that causes upon the earth. But then chapter 7 introduces them to an innumerable multitude of saints in heaven. And thereafter, chapter 8 takes them down to earth again. And the sounding of the six trumpets. But then the, the seventh trumpet sounds in chapter 11, and they're in heaven again. And so it goes. This book keeps on switching back and forth from earth 
to heaven, from darkness to light, from suffering to glory, from pain to praise, from man to God. And that's also what we saw, didn't we, last Sunday morning? Remember chapter 13 opened with that beast who came out of the sea and what did he do? But he made war on the saints on earth. And thereafter we were introduced to the beast from the earth and he was just as destructive leading almost everyone to be numbered. And he even had that special number 666, you'll recall. All that takes place on earth. But then chapter 14 opens, and where were we in heaven again? John writes, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And he's not standing there alone, because there are 144,000 people with him. And so, beloved, the movement is back and forth, up and down from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. Every time that the saints on earth appear to be finished or washed up, there comes this new injection of heavenly hope. But then, beloved, although this happens often, realize that it doesn't keep on happening forever and ever. It will end. For now, here in chapter 14, verse 6, we come to a turning point in the book of Revelation. A new sound, a new development, a new phase is dawning, and it has everything to do with judgment. As you read our text, you can even sense that things are changing and that now God is moving towards the end. The cycles of down and up are rolling on to a great conclusion and to a mighty climax. And to show you what that means, let's take a closer look at the second part of chapter 14. I preached to you on the theme, the footsteps of judgment. And we're going to see, first of all, the end is near. Secondly, the saints are blessed. And finally, the harvest is coming. Well, beloved, first of all, notice the end is near. It's approaching. How do we know? Well, you need to look at these three angels. John says that he saw yet another angel, and he and we too have seen a lot of angels by now. But this one, this first of three, is is different, is special. He has, it says, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. In other words, this gospel is not just for a moment or for special occasions. No, it applies always and ever. It's a message for every age. It is eternal. But yet it's also universal because it is to be proclaimed, John says, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Everyone, everywhere, is supposed to hear it. It applies to every society under the sun. All people need to hear it. But what is this gospel all about? What's its main thrust and message? Well, it's this. Very simply, fear God, 
and give Him glory. In other words, it's calling upon countless people everywhere to acknowledge, confess, and tremble, stand in awe of God. But that's just for openers, because fearing God is only the first half. There is the second half, and it is all about glory. Give Him the glory. The angel shouts, praise Him, honor Him, pay tribute to Him. You see, this is not just about admitting that God exists and that there is some kind of higher being somewhere out there in the universe. Now, this goes much, much further. Of course, God exists. That's a given. It can almost be ignored. But what cannot be ignored is the universal need to fear Him and to glorify Him. Of course, when the people on the earth hear this, they laugh, they snicker and sneer, they smile and smirk. Mankind reacts at it as always reacted with scorn and ridicule. And the angel insists this is no longer a laughing matter, for he has the hour of judgment has come. Time is up, folks. The days of grace and mercy are over. You need to get serious. Yes, and to drive that point home, the angel even adds something more. Namely, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Verse 7. In some ways, John is echoing the Apostle Paul here. In Romans 1, Paul makes the point that men everywhere know God. They know that He exists. They know that He's there. But willfully and spitefully, they refuse to acknowledge Him. There is just no way they're going to glorify Him. Well, John says that kind of stubborn unbelief needs to go. The peoples of the earth need to confess Him and bow before Him and worship Him. And they need to do it before it's too late. For the times of debating his existence are over. And the time for worship is now. Now. But then, beloved, there is a second angel. He too has a message for the earth. What? Well, listen, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. What kind of a message is this? Well, this is a message declaring that the whole godless world order is about to collapse. And notice the tense used here. It's the past tense. That's the angel's way of saying that although it hasn't happened yet, it's surely and certainly going to happen. Why, it's as if it's happened already. So definitely will it take place. And notice as well the word Babylon. Some think of ancient Babel and its huge towers. Others think of Nebuchadnezzar's great city of Babylon. Still others think of Rome. In the end, it doesn't really matter, for Babylon is all of them and more. 
It stands for all the godless kingdoms and empires of the world. Wherever one finds heathen, wicked, depraved centers of power in the world today, there you find Babylon. And this Babylon, the angel, the second angel says, is finished. It's run its course. God has had its fill of it. It's fallen. It's done. Now that brings us to the third angel. What does he have to say? Well, he proclaims what will happen to all those who persist in worshiping the beast. Listen again to the verses 9 to 11. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Isn't that just about one of the most repulsive, awful things You've ever heard? Rather gruesome, horrendous. We hear these words in Scripture and we're shocked. Did an angel really say this? Does, does God really approve of this? Is he serious? Or perhaps is he just playing games with those marked people? Well, beloved, this is no bluff. This is real stuff. God means it. Oh, and if you're wondering why the language is so graphic and intense, it is because the fate that awaits these people if they do not repent is truly awful. Torment, burning sulfur, no rest, God's fury, the cup of wrath. These are images that are meant to drive home the seriousness of God's call to repent. It's God's way of saying, folks, this is no time to sit back and ponder. This is not the time to debate and discuss. This is the time to act or else. And there is one who really, really knows that this is true. And who knows it's the Lamb. The Lamb mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 14. Look closely at, at the language here. And, and what do you see? You see what the Lamb himself experienced already. Did he not drink the cup of God's fury? Did he not swallow the cup of God's wrath? Did he not know unspeakable torment? Could he not identify his life with having no rest? In Gethsemane, 
before Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod on the cross even, he knew what the judgment of God was like. And it was awful. Truly, truly awful. And so the call of the third angel goes out. But realize where the angel comes from. He comes from the throne. He comes from the Lamb. In and through Him, Christ is speaking, informing, and warning. Heed His call. Listen to His angels. Take His warning to heart. But you might ask, why does Christ go to all this bother? Why did he experience something so awful, and why does he keep on warning through his angels? He does it because of his mercy. And he does it also for the sake of his saints. Indeed, he does everything with an eye, one eye at least, on his followers. And you can see that here too. No sooner does the angel, the third angel, come with his terrible news for the world, and there is good news for the saints. First John reminds the saints, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. We heard that before, right? Chapter 13, verse 11. Only now he adds these words, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. You know, maybe you're one of those people who thinks that the reading of the Ten Commandments every Sunday is an old-fashioned, unnecessary, Old Testament kind of stuff. Well, I remind you that here you have it in the very last book of the Bible. In the very last days. Reminding God's people to obey God's commandments is an ongoing duty of the church of Jesus Christ. And so is being faithful to Jesus. These things matter every day. And so does something else. So does the realization that death is not the end. Martyrdom is hard, dying is hard, but it is not an unmitigated disaster. For look, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Notice what's associated with death. Blessing is connected to it. Rest is connected to it. Reward is connected to it. It's not over when it's over. For the saints, it's only beginning. The best is yet to come. Glory awaits. Blessings appear. But then realize as well that this is true only for those who, as it says, die in the Lord. 
blessing, honor, rest, and life eternal are all benefits that come to those who are in Christ and, and who are united to Him by faith. Beloved, if Christ is your Lord and your Savior, your King and your Redeemer, you have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. I do not say that lightly, for there is still more in our text, more bad news for the world and good news for the saints. Only this time it comes not just from the earth, the bad news, but also from heaven. Verse 14 opens and we're pointed, notice, to one like a son of man. Who is he? Some scholars think he's an angel, but then a special angel. I'm, however, inclined to say that, that this is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And, and why the disagreement? Well, because the one who is like a son of man is seen here to be taking orders. Notice verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who sits on the throne, Take your sickle. So does the Son of Man, does Jesus Christ take orders? We'll come back to that in a moment. For now, let's concentrate on the orders. What are they about? Really, they're about two harvests, but then two very different harvests. First, there is the wheat harvest described in the verses 15 and 16. Take your sickle because the time is ripe, has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. In some ways, that's reminiscent of what the Lord Jesus describes in Matthew 13, the parable of the of the weeds. You remember there, the good weeds are growing up with the bad weeds, or the good seed is growing up with the bad weeds. And, and the servants, they, they're impatient. They want to go out. They want to pull out all the weeds. But the owner says, no. Let them grow up together until the harvest. So first of all, they're spoken then of a wheat harvest here. Next, there is spoken of another harvest, a grape harvest. Verse 17 describes the coming of another angel. And notice he too has a sharp sickle. And he too is told to begin the harvest for the grapes are ripe. So just like the Son of Man is told to harvest the wheat, and that's important, the second angel is told to harvest the grapes. And then he is supposed to throw them into the wine press to be trampled down and to be turned into wine. So here then you have two harvests. And all the Israelites are familiar with both. But they're both symbolic. The first harvest points to the gathering in of the saints by the Son of Man, by Jesus Christ. As wheat is harvested, so the saints too will be harvested and brought in. This is a positive, beneficial harvest. The second harvest, however, is of a totally different kind. For notice what happens to grapes. They're crushed. They're trampled. 
The life is squeezed out of them until the juice begins to flow and flow. You see what you have here, beloved, is a picture of judgment. The wine press is called the great wine press of God's wrath. And what flows out is not juice, but blood. A huge river of blood. Hundreds of stadia. So what's the message? If you're a grape, be warned. Judgment is coming. Your days are numbered. Your future is grim. And the only way out is to repent and fall down before the Lamb. But on the other hand, if you're wheat and good grain, you've nothing to fear and everything to anticipate. Indeed, what is coming to you is vindication at last. For notice, and now you have to look a little closer, notice that both harvests, that of the just and of the unjust, originate in the temple. But there is a difference. For two angels are involved in the grape harvest or in the judgment of the wicked. There is a temple agent or angel in verse 17. There is an altar angel in verse 18. And it is the altar angel who tells the temple agent with the sickle to start swinging it. So what's with the altar? What's with this temple angel and this altar angel? Well, think, beloved. Who are under the altar in the temple? Go back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. There John says that he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. And they called out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Do you see what's going on here? The saints under the altar are crying out to God for an end to their persecution and for the beginning of their vindication. And now here in chapter 14, it has begun. The prayers of those under the altar are being heard. The harvest is coming. The Son of Man has heard their plea and the time has come. Jesus with a crown of gold on his head and with a sickle in his hand receives the call to begin the harvest. And his orders come from heaven through an angel. For God alone, I remind you, knows the day and the moment. And the harvest of the saints... And of the world 
begins. Taken together against a backdrop of judgment, there is still a picture filled with hope. It's a picture for a struggling, suffering church. This is a reminder to them that God has not forgotten them and that one day He will do them right. And it shows them that there is justice at the heart of the universe. And that one day evil will come to its end. And He will do it through His Son. And through His angels. So what an encouragement for them. And I dare say what an encouragement for us today as well. Look around you today. What do you see? Isn't it this as if evil marches on and conquers everything. It's as if wicked men, greedy men flourish. It's as if sickness and cancer dominates. It's as if violence and immorality and bloodshed and persecution always have the upper hand. Think of those Christians living today in Nigeria. But be assured, beloved, that one day soon the harvest of the just and the unjust will happen. The days of those who have the mark of the beast on their foreheads are numbered. But the days, however, of those who have the name of Christ and the Father's name written on their foreheads, as it says in chapter 4, verse 1, are numberless. And so John is saying to the church then, and he's saying to us in the church today, truly, truly, in spite of everything, Everything you have to go through, everything you have to suffer, everything you have to see and experience, in spite of it all, you will overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to thank you for your word. We come to thank you for your mercy. For your grace in Jesus Christ. We come to thank you that in spite of the fact that we live in a world of persecution and suffering and death. You are there for us. You will be there forever. You will help us through. You will strengthen us and walk with us. And carry us all the way to glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.